0: Good evening, I'm Barb. Today's scripture reading will be from the book of Mark 13, verses one through 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell me when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray, many will come in my name saying I am he and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, and the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. It is not for you to speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Barb. Appreciate that. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you. Um, We are always super glad that you have joined us in worship. Um, My name is Dave Hahn, if you don't know me. And it is my privilege, as always, to be able to open with and for you. So as I was preparing the message this week, I was thinking back to 2001. I was 30 years old when the attacks on 9-11 occurred. Go ahead and do the math. (laughs) By, By God's grace, attacks like those on our nation are rare. In the history of our nation, Pearl Harbor and 9-11 are probably the two primary events that have shaken us as a people. They were events that reminded our nation and really the watching world of the reality that even we, the United States, are susceptible to our enemies. On 9-11, buildings that seemed immovable came crashing down in less than two hours from being struck. Structures that represented the very fabric of our nation, the Twin Towers, the Pentagon, the U.S. Capitol, and the White House were the focus of an all-out assault by enemies who lived among us. Men who trained and planned for these attacks in our own backyards. And to a person, our nation and the watching world was stunned. The unthinkable had happened. And our sense of Safety and security as a nation and as a people was severely damaged. I remember in the days that followed attending church services where the text that we'll be in today was used. In looking at these words and the warnings of Jesus, we found comfort in knowing and being reminded that God was in control. And that even if all else came crumbling down, the rock upon which our faith was built would not. It would not. We wanted a renewed sense of hope. Hope that ran deeper than our nation or our government or the symbols of strength within it. Symbols that were now smoldering. Part of what made Pearl Harbor and 9-11 so frightening, I think, is that we were really taken surprise by them. In both cases, as a nation, we were not at war. But upon being attacked, we were suddenly and certainly ushered into one. In today's passage, Jesus warned the disciples of what was to come, of unspeakable destruction and certain defeat in a war that was still decades away. And his goal in speaking of these things was not so that Israel might prepare for an attack against them or to steal away the element of surprise from their enemies. Jesus was not primarily concerned for the preservation of Israel or its temple. Instead, his concern was for the hearts and the minds and the souls of his disciples that they would not be distracted or led astray from him. And so, in these first 13 verses of what is called the Olivet Discourse, Jesus addresses four spiritual dangers wrapped up in the apocalyptic events yet to come for his followers, and to some degree for us. The first of which is found in verses 1 through 2. It reads, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Who's heard the word buzzkill? In verse 1, the disciples were buzzing about the temple of Jerusalem. And in verse 2, Jesus quickly killed that buzzing. The disciples, friends, were buzzing for good reason. The temple was incredibly impressive, though it was not technically the first of its kind. The first temple in Jerusalem was built by a King Solomon, David's son, in 1000 B.C., and it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in 586 B.C. The second temple was built by exiles returning from Babylonian captivity in 516 B.C., though that temple was much more modest in scope compared to the one that Solomon had built. And then, in 19 B.C., King Herod significantly enlarged the temple mount, and he began refurbishing it. And by all accounts, the Temple of Jesus' day was an architectural wonder of the Roman world. First of all, it was enormous. It was 500 yards long by all estimates and 400 yards wide. That's four to five football fields in either direction. I don't know that I've ever thought about the temple being that big. It was constructed of white marble and it was overlaid in many of places with gold. And it was adorned with all kinds of beautiful decorations and votives. It is said that this temple, because of the white marble and because of the gold, shone so brightly that when the sun and the moon hit it, it would blind those who gazed upon it. One of its foundational stones is so gigantic that most modern cranes could not lift it. It measures 44 feet long and 11 feet high, one foundational stone. And it was this temple that the disciples marveled at, for good reason. It was this temple they marveled at and maybe idolized. And in this view of the temple, we find the first spiritual danger that Jesus had warned his disciples about. It was this temple that Jesus predicted would be destroyed, not one stone left on top of another. And it was this temple that Jesus would say he was greater than and Jesus sought to shift the disciples' love and affection from outward symbols of God, like the temple, to God himself. And so it is with you and me. Friends, Jesus was preparing his disciples for the day when every religious help and symbol would be taken from them. Where their identity would and could no longer be rooted in their nation and their religion or the institutions within. Rather, their identity would be rooted by who they were and what they were called to do in Christ. That would be their identity. That would be the foundation. And for men who were expecting the Messiah to bring an earthly kingdom or to restore Israel to a place of prominence with the temple at its center, Jesus' words in verses 1 and 2 made little sense to them. And so, a few of them gathered together to ask him about it. Verses 3 through 6. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. In these few verses, we find the second spiritual danger that Jesus warned them of. False messiahs. False messiahs. The disciples wanted to know about the specifics of the temple. They wanted to know about Israel's future. Because they likely remembered the stories they had heard of the first temple's destruction 400 years earlier and had real concern that it was going to happen again and wanted to know how and wanted to know when. But Jesus did not give them the answers that they were hoping for, at least not in a chronologically helpful way, they wouldn't have been able to pick out who would destroy it and in what year. Rather, Jesus' primary concern was for potential damage to their own souls by deceptive and false messiahs. It said, many will be led astray. So Jesus warned his disciples of it and said, do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. Friends, I think that we we can't separate ourselves from the warning that Jesus gave to the disciples and believe that we are not just as susceptible of ignoring or missing some of these same spiritual dangers. At the expense of our own curiosity, that we would ignore these dangers, miss these dangers, because like the disciples, we are curious about the wrong things. There are entire ministries, as most of us know, that exist to pontificate on when Jesus is coming back. When Jesus is coming back and what it's going to look like. And we eat it up. We eat it up. Amazon has tens of thousands of books on the subjects of Christian prophecy and the end times. Tens of thousands of books. And I'm sure they're all in agreement. You smell that? That sarcasm. The Left Behind book series, I'm sure most of you are familiar with it. There's been movies made about it as well. But the Left Behind Book series, which deals with the end times from a biblical perspective, is the most popular-selling Christian fiction series in history to date selling over 90 million copies. People are fascinated with it. Traveling speakers tour the nation with tabloid-like headlines, including firm details and exact dates of the end. And in doing so, these authors and these speakers scratch the itch that we all have to know what's coming and when. Potentially worrying or distracting us from what truly matters and what Jesus has truly called us to be about and to do. And here's the most interesting thing, I think, about all of that. No one, No one who has made a prediction about Christ's return or the end of our age has been right. No one who has made a prediction has been right. Every claim of Jesus is coming back on such and such a date or the world is going to end in the year so and so has been wrong. The world still spins you and I are still here, and Jesus is on the throne. Do you know that every generation has thought it was going to be the last one? If I'm honest, just to bear my own soul a little bit here, I don't actually quite understand. I'm curious about people's obsession with end-time prophecy. Because... Even if someone is right about what happens and when, the outcome doesn't change. If you're right about the what and the when, the outcome is still the same. Why worry about when Jesus is going to return if Jesus wins regardless? What's the value in that? Christian Jesus said that we are going to lose battles as the end draws near and we will talk about what some of those battles will look like today and in the weeks to come but brothers and sisters please be encouraged in Christ though we may lose battles it is we who will win the war battles may be lost but it is we in Christ who win the war I was thinking about this this week and I was hearkening back to the good old days of when we had cable. (laughs) We stream almost everything nowadays and we don't miss it, but um, back when we had cable, one of the benefits of having cable was that you could DVR things. And back when I had cable, I would DVR Brewer games, I'm a very big Brewer fan, and occasionally there would be a game where I didn't get to watch it, but I would learn the score Prior to having gotten to watch it. But I would still watch to see how the game shook out, because I'm that much of a nerd and that much of a fan. I knew the score, but I watched it anyway. Have you ever done that? Do you know how differently you watch a game when you already know who won? Do you know how differently you watch those games? When you don't know who won, a huge deficit might cause you to turn the game off. But if you know that your team wins, it doesn't matter how big the loss appears in the moment. It doesn't matter. Even if it's the bottom of the ninth inning or the fourth quarter, you just get to sit back and enjoy the win. And so it is for Christians in the end times. No matter how difficult things get for you and I or our brothers and sisters around the world, no matter who is in power, no matter which way the culture turns, our God is sovereign and our God wins. And the worse things get, the closer we are to being with Him face to face. Do you know that? So be careful, please be careful, about your own speculation and predictions or listening too intently to those who make them. Jesus himself, my friends, does not know the day or the hour, but only the Father knows. So instead of being wrapped up in predictions and speculation, find peace in knowing that you are on the winning side if you know Christ. Verse 5 again says, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. Friends, we need to be careful of those who come in Christ's name. We have recently seen too many well thought of and well respected pastors and teachers fall. Too many well-respected and well-thought of pastors and teachers have fallen in recent days. And if I'm honest, these reports can tend to be, uh, apart from disappointing, overwhelming to me and cause me to ask, did these people even know Christ to begin with? That ultimately, of course, is just for them and and for God to know, but it makes us wonder, right? The warning for the disciples and for us is this— Do not be deceived. Listen intently to the words of those who claim Christ and watch well what they do, especially when they sin. Especially when they sin. And ask yourself, is Jesus Christ, His gospel, and His word central in all that they say and do? Now, of course, no one is going to live perfectly, or speak perfectly. And we need to recognize that in most cases, our view into somebody else's life is limited. So we need to be cautious without being condemning. We have to be cautious without being condemning. As Jonathan mentioned last week, it is our theology And our lifestyle that matter. It is not one or the other. You can't have good theology and a cruddy lifestyle, or vice versa. It is both. A true follower, a representative of Christ will talk the talk, they will walk the walk, and when they do not, they will be quick to repent. They will be quick to repent. So consider today who it is that you're listening to and be careful that you are not led astray. Continuing in verses 7 through 8 and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginning. Of the, birth pains. the third spiritual danger that Jesus warns us about is the distraction of a world in turmoil. I use that word distraction intentionally because it is that idea that Jesus alludes to in these two verses. Phrases like, do not be alarmed, the end is not yet, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. These are words of caution. encouragement. Wars, rumors of wars, nations rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, all are necessary events which lead to the end but are not the end in and of themselves. They lead to the end but they are not the end. But Dave have the things in Mark thirteen that we're reading about happened already? Or are they yet to happen? And here's my answer: Yes, yes. Friends, biblical prophecy finds its truth in every age, though the specifics may vary. As in, for instance, the temple was torn down. That is not symbolic. That is not metaphorical. That prophecy is fulfilled but many other end-time prophecies, warnings, and encouragements are applicable to Christians in all times and in all places. Wars, strife, earthquakes, and famines have always been, and they will always be. What Jesus warns us about in these verses is their intensity and their frequency, just like labor pains. Ask any woman who's given birth, there's a few here, early on in that last trimester, as time gets close, women will often think that they are in labor until they actually are. This is not to take away from those early labor pains. I'd be asking for an epidural after the first one. I am just saying, as those pains increase in intensity and frequency we know that the cl- the child is closer to being born and that's the metaphor that Jesus is using here intensity and frequency that's how we know that things are getting closer Jesus is telling you and I that a new age and a new heaven and a new earth is about to be born. And just as labor pains are not the actual birth, so false messiahs, wars, earthquakes, famines, and persecution are not the end. Rather, those things are the beginning of something new a new heaven and a new earth and a new age. My friends, our greatest spiritual danger, however, is the last one that Jesus mentions in verses 9 through 13. He says, But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my name's sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So the fourth spiritual danger for the disciples and for you and I is persecution for our faith. Verse 9 lays out specific prophecies that would have certainly resonated with the early church. But as I mentioned earlier, these are also still applicable for much of the modern church as well. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been proclaimed to far more people and in far more many places than the disciples could have imagined. And it will continue to be proclaimed to every corner of the earth until Jesus returns. And as the gospel is shared and as it is received, persecution will follow. Just as Jesus said it would. We, in the West, have been largely spared true spiritual persecution. And I think that we almost insult our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world when we compare what are really inconveniences for us to what they have known and experienced. None of us, none of us have been beaten or killed for our faith. None of us have stood before political figures or government officials needing to explain ourselves. But all throughout the book of Acts, as Luke detailed the formative days of the early church, persecution was a common occurrence, and Christians were beaten, imprisoned, and called to account for their faith. Ironically, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, subjected Christians to persecution, and then in becoming a Christian himself, became the subject of it. And friends, rest assured, there is a large, large contingency of our Christian brothers and sisters in different parts of the world who read Mark 13 and think, certainly what he said would happen is now happening to us. And I do believe that persecution is coming and will continue to come to places and to people that it has not seen before. This age of cultural Christianity, which has historically meant very little persecution for Western Christians, is coming to a close. And so our hearts and our spirits need to be ready. Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over. Not if. When. The apostles were put to trial and delivered. Unexpectedly. And without time to consider or prepare what they would do or say. And Jesus knew that this would be the case. And so his encouragement to them was, don't be anxious. The Holy Spirit will speak on your behalf. That was his promise to them. And that promise remains for all of those who find themselves suddenly persecuted. But where this promise does not apply, this is important, where this promise does not apply is outside of such persecution. Sudden persecution. And here's what I mean by that. You and I must always, always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have in Christ and share our faith as God gives us opportunity. As Christians with easy and widespread access to a Bible, we need to read it and to study it and to understand how to answer those who question our faith while trusting that the Spirit will reveal its truth to us and remind us of that truth when it is necessary. He will teach us all things and remind you of everything I have said that was Jesus' promise to his disciples. Trust me on this, my friends. Our sermons, Jonathan, Jonathan's sermons, my sermons, would look very, very different if we walked up each week unprepared and expecting the Holy Spirit to fill in the blanks for us. It would be a train wreck. Probably Jonathan more than me. I'm just kidding. Friends, where we can be prepared, we must be prepared. We have Bibles, the Word of God, the Spirit of God dwelling within us. We can be prepared to give reason for the hope that we have when we are questioned. And should the day come that we are persecuted. Finishing up in verses 12 through 13. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So in verse 12 we discover that persecution comes from a most hurtful place, our families. There are likely people sitting in this room and or listening to my voice whose immediate family relationships have been either severed or strained because of their faith in Christ. And apart from Christ doing a work in their family members, that strain and that animosity will only increase. And just to be clear, I am talking about persecution for the offense of the gospel, not offense for how you live it or share it with others. You don't get to be a jerk and call it persecution. Church, we have brothers and sisters throughout the world who were formerly Jewish, or Muslim, or Hindu, or just plain secularists. But now they claim Christ as Lord and Savior. And as such, they have been disowned, rejected, or martyred by their family for their faith in Him. In the course of history, do you know that more than 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith? 70 million Christians, by all estimates. Including all but one of the disciples who stood near Jesus. And half of those martyrdoms have occurred in the 20th century alone. Over the last decade, an estimated 900,000 Christians have been killed for their faith in Christ. That is one every six minutes. And that's not to mention the hiding, meeting in secret Kidnappings or the verbal or physical or sexual abuse that these same Christians suffer. And while almost none of the Western world has been subjected to such extreme persecution, things will likely not stay that way. Cultural Christianity, as I mentioned, which has served as a blanket of protection, is fading. The divide between those who truly know and love and follow Jesus and those who hate him is growing even wider. The middle will no longer exist. And as the end draws near, those who love the Bible and the Jesus found within it will be increasingly hated. It's found right there in verse 13. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Because in being hated, we actually find ourselves in the company of our master. Listen to Jesus' words for his disciples from John 15. He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. So it is not us that they reject. It is not us that they hate. It is Jesus in us. It is Jesus in us. And their hatred will grow so deep and will grow so intense that according to verse 12 of today's passage, even members of one's own family will look to kill the Christ follower among them. To whatever degree that sounds crazy to you, understand that you have brothers and sisters who are living it today. So, we talked about buzzkills. <laughs> These are not easy or comforting words to hear on the surface. But understand, friends, that whether you realize it or not, it's what you signed up for. In following Christ. And like Paul, our lives must be marked by this truth. For me, for me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Our hope, my friends, is not found in a life of ease and comfort but in the promise of a Savior who is and will be with us no matter what we face. And those who belong to him, those who endure to the end, as verse 13 says, are saved, are being saved, and will be saved. False Christians will demonstrate their falseness by not enduring Whereas true Christians will demonstrate that they belong to Christ by enduring no matter what comes their way. Enduring is evidence of the spirit of God within them. You are not white-knuckling it to endure. You are trusting the spirit of God within you to endure. Hear God's promise as we finish from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the promise we have. Friends, in 70 A.D., Forty years after Jesus made this declaration, Jesus' prediction came true and God's judgment fell upon Israel. King Titus' Roman army had destroyed what is now called the second temple. The temple that Jesus and his disciples knew. The temple that they were looking at in this passage. And not one stone was left on top of another. What is left of that temple now is essentially a tourist attraction with only a small section of that temple's foundation remaining. It's known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. The temple destruction by King Titus's army was so complete that archaeologists have difficulty knowing exactly where the temple boundaries were. It was a stru- destruction so complete that Jews have nothing left to go to and nowhere to worship or make sacrifices. But, but, Jesus Christ remains. Yesterday, today, and forever. And his gospel continues to go forth. Though Jesus' body was torn on a cross for your sins and mine, It was raised again three days later, just as he said it would be. And he calls all who truly seek God to come to him by faith and present their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. Why? Because God is building a new temple of which Christ is the cornerstone and you and I are the building blocks. God is building a new body of which Jesus Christ is the head and we are members. And he is about ready to throw the wedding of weddings in which Christ is the groom and you and I are his bride. The worshipers that God seeks need not concern themselves anymore with buildings or with institutions or with rites or with rituals. Nor Do they need to concern themselves with the exact details of when or how he returns? They only need to be ready when he does. They only need to be ready when he does. Because the church of Jesus Christ is not a building, but it is a people. It has been said that we don't go to church, but that we are the church. And whether Jesus returns in our lifetime, or that we are with him when he does, whether we experience persecution or whether we live in relative comfort and freedom, we can find rest in knowing that we are permanently indwelled by the one who says to his own, that's you and me, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is our helper. We will not fear. What can man do to us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that these words are true. We recognize that many of these things that you said would happen have happened. And that many of the things that you said would happen have yet to happen. And they may very well happen in our lifetime. And we confess to you, God, that it concerns us. We confess to you, God, that we don't like the idea of persecution or difficulty or trial. We don't like the idea that maybe it will go so far and it will run so deep that we may not endure to the end. God, would you help us to confess those things to you? Would you help us, God, to be reminded that we are on the winning side? Would you help us, God, to rehearse the promises that say you will not leave us, you will not forsake us, that nothing can separate us from you? Would you help us, Lord, in this time to evaluate and be introspective regarding our own faith? Are we talking the talk or are we walking the walk? Father, when we sin, are we, are we glad and do we justify it? Or are we heartbroken and wanting to quickly return to you? To have you make us whole. To have you restore our union. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. And I pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are experiencing the persecution that you talked about. Who are living daily with wars and rumors of war and famines and earthquakes. And for some reason, God, according to your grace, according to your favor, by and large, that has not been our experience. God, would you shape us in this moment. Would you stir our hearts and our affections for you, reminding us of what is true, helping us to shrug off the things that are not true, recognizing, God, that your perfect love will cast out fear. Help us, God, to know for ourselves the reason for the hope that we have, to rest in tranquility and peace in knowing that no matter what happens to us, the best is yet to come. And would you help us, God, to declare the good news of Jesus Christ, his gospel, forgiveness once and for all, and life eternal in him to those who do not know it. And if we are rejected, and if we are hated, to recognize that we have been counted in good company to know that it is not we who can save, but you alone. But you have asked us to declare. You have asked us to make disciples of those who do believe. And you have asked us to love you and to love one another as you have first loved us. Father, we trust the unknown future to you. We trust what will happen and when will happen to you. Believing that you are working out all of these things for our good and for your glory. We love you and we thank you for this time this afternoon. And we are grateful, God, for the promise of your spirit in and through your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amen.